This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Earlier this year, Goldman Sachs Research published a report called Learning from a Century of U.S. Recessions, and it went through five historical causes of recessions and looked at each one of them to address the question that's on every investor's mind today, how far away is the next downturn? Today, we're doing a deep dive into just one of those causes, private sector financial imbalances, and what different pockets of the credit market can tell us about the risk of another recession. We're joined by Latvi Karui, Chief Credit Strategist for Goldman Sachs Research. Latvi, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start with some definitional issues. When we talk about private sector financial imbalances, what are we really looking at in the economy, and why is it a good indicator of the risk of a recession? What we're basically looking at is whether the private sector is living beyond its means or not. And so the private sector financial balance, when we say private sector, we mean households and corporations. That typically refers to total income minus total spending. And when it goes into negative territory, it tells you that the private sector is actually into deficit territory, which generally leads to asset bubbles and eventually leads to a recession or an economic downturn. Now, if you look at the last two recessions, 2008, 2009, or prior to that, the early 2000s, that was sort of the playbook that we had, a collapse of housing market in 08, 09, and then prior to that, the collapse of the tech bubble in the late 90s and early 2000s. Where are we today? Big difference between today and the mid-2000s. Today, the private sector in the U.S. is well into surplus territory as far as the private sector financial balance goes. And that's really a key positive differentiator of this cycle relative to the previous ones. It's one of the reasons why we think the risk of a recession, at least in the near to medium term, is still fairly contained. The risk that we have a financial overshoot like we had in 07, 08 or prior to that in the late 90s is still fairly small, at least if you look at that metric. Talk about the pace of credit growth in this cycle relative to some of the cycles you described. Let's start with households. Are you seeing any signs that they're overextending themselves today? The picture is overall very, very benign for households. So to your question about debt growth, if you start with the mortgage market, for example, what you see is an unprecedented decline in the total outstanding of mortgage loans by 16% inflation adjusted, which is something that we've never had, at least if you go back 60 years. And then if you look outside of the mortgage space, so other pockets of consumer credit, what you see is that the pace of growth in consumer credit has been the slowest, at least by the standards of the past four cycles. And so overall, when you look at debt growth for households, it's been very, very benign. Probably more importantly, if you looked at standard balance sheet ratios like debt to income or debt service ratios, those have been actually improving quite dramatically since the economy turned a corner in mid-2009. And again, that's a big difference between this cycle and the 2000s. In the 2000s, you had basically the flip side of what you've seen in the past seven, eight years, which was gradual deterioration of balance sheet metrics. Today, you're seeing the opposite. And so overall, the picture is very, very solid as far as credit quality goes. So households seem to have learned the lesson Correct. Uh, of yes. the last crisis yeah. that they, they don't want to overextend themselves. They're going to pay down their debt when Absolutely. they can, and they're not running up the bills. On the corporate side, how does it look? You've said corporates look like they're an entirely different cycle than households. 
Explain that for us. That's right. I think the picture for corporations is a lot more mixed, to say the least. And so if you look at that growth, it's been faster relative to the 2000s. If you look at net leverage on balance sheets, it's been increasing pretty steadily since late 2011. So one of the things we look at, we sort of take the median company in the investment grade and high yield markets and kind of look at how net leverage on balance sheets has evolved the past two decades. And if you look at that graph, what you see is that net leverage is the highest we've seen since the late 90s. And so just by that metric, what you would conclude immediately is that the ability of corporate America or the ability of corporations to withstand a shock, no matter what that shock is, has been greatly diminished, at least by the standards of the past two decades. Now, Having said that, I think there are a few things that are important to keep in mind, a few mitigating factors to the rise in net leverage. One is profitability. Profitability is the strongest we've seen in 30 years. And then the second one is debt servicing capacity, which is also very, very strong. And so it's a function of profitability. Correct. It's a function of earnings and interest expenses. But those two things actually do provide a pretty decent offset to the increase in net leverage. And so overall, when you interact leverage with profitability and debt servicing capacity, I think the picture looks a lot better relative to the late 90s, but worse relative to, say, the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. Digging a little deeper on the corporate side, you've identified five different pockets of concerns in credit markets. What are they and what's the broader narrative? The first thing I would say is that, you know, given the length of this cycle, there's no shortage of things to worry about in general. But the common or the most frequently encountered concern among investors and market participants in general is that you've had years of very accommodated monetary policy. And as a result of that, you've seen loosening of underwriting standards and excessive issuer friendliness in credit markets. And so, The pockets that people typically point to are, one, uh, the growth of triple B issuers in the investment-grade market and the risk of a wave of downgrades from the investment-grade market into the high-yield market. Number two, the leveraged loan market. And the concern there is size. It's a market that's been growing at double-digit levels for the past four to five years. And it's a market where we've seen excessive issuer friendliness to particularly the past two years. Number three, the subprime auto loan market. It's highly unusual to see a rise in delinquency rates in an economy that's operating at full capacity and growing above trend. Number four, the student loan market. It's a market that has experienced material growth over the past 20 years, and delinquency rates have been oscillating around double-digit levels for probably six, seven years now. And then finally, the commercial real estate market. It's a market that's been overheating from a valuation standpoint, and people have in mind the memories of 2005, 2007, when you had a meaningful increase in defaults and losses in the space. So generically, I would say those are sort of the five pockets of concerns that have attracted attention both in the press and within investors. Let's go a little deeper on each one of them. We'll start with what you call the triple B-zation that's a tough word to pronounce, yeah. of the IG corporate market, the investment-grade corporate bond market. You mentioned we've seen a bit of acceleration in bond downgrades from higher-rated A status down into that's triple right. B, and that's raised concerns that we'll see further downgrades. How big a risk is that in your view, and how are you watching it? The problem with the triple B space in the investment-grade market is twofold. One is size. Basically, the share of triple B bonds in the investment-grade market has grown from 30% about 10 years ago to 50% today. And so when you buy a diversified portfolio of investment-grade bonds today, de facto, it is a triple B portfolio. You're getting Uh, half the market. Half the market, exactly. So it's very, very hard to avoid. And then the second concern is concentration. There are, on our account at least, 
over 500 distinct parent company tickers that are rated triple B in the bond market today. The top 15% account for a little less than 30% of the total exposure. And so it's very, very concentrated in a handful of capital structures. And then the risk is really straightforward. The risk is that you wake up tomorrow and there's a wave of downgrades from IG or investment grade into high yield. If that happens, you create a funding problem for those companies and potentially what I would call a technical indigestion because of the inability of the high yield market to absorb that much debt in such a short period of time. What are the odds? Very low in our view. Traditionally or typically, uh, downgrades accelerate during periods of economic downturns over or recessions. And even when you zoom in on the past three recessions, what you see is that it never happens overnight. It's generally a process that's actually spread out through time. We're of the view that recession risk is fairly low in the near term, and so that leads us to think that the risk of a meaningful acceleration in downgrades is still very, very low. Number two, the mindset within that triple B slice of the market is actually very, very conservative. What we've seen is a clear bifurcation in the way companies are behaving between the low end of the investment grade market, so those triple B rated companies, and then the higher end of the market, those single A rated companies. But the triple B rated companies have been acting very, very conservatively. Now, willingness to deleverage is not ability, and not everyone will have the ability to execute on those plans. But I think it's important to keep in mind that the appetite for further releveraging in that triple B slice is very, very low. Third argument, if you actually zoom in on those 15 large capital structures and look at things like free cash flows, earnings, net leverage, and really ask yourself, what would it take to get a wave of downgrades among those 15 capital structures? The answer is quite a lot. It would take a meaningful shock to earnings to see a big and large wave of downgrades from triple B into high yield. So all of that leads us to basically take the view that the risk of a meaningful acceleration is fairly low. Now, having said that, under the surface, there are pockets that do warrant close attention. There are sectors where the ability to deleverage is fairly limited, where debt capacity is very, very stretched. And so there's a risk that you see what I would call passive releveraging, releveraging driven by weak earnings growth. And those are food and beverage, for example. The whole consumer space is very, very vulnerable. But those are idiosyncratic stories. They're not systematic. They're not broad-based. There are other sectors that we actually like. They have a heavy exposure to triple B credits, but we think there's risk of positive rating migration, and that's telecom, for example, or banks. And so the way I would summarize it is that the triple B story is not a rating story per se. It's a sector, and sometimes it's an issuer story. But what we've been arguing against is sort of a one-size-fits-all type of mindset where we would put all triple Bs in the same bucket that just not true. I mean, some of them are better positioned to sort of ride this final leg of the cycle. It also sounds as though it's more likely that a recession would cause this than the other way around. Yeah. An area of the market that's gotten a lot of attention, certainly in the press, but also from regulators, is the growth of leveraged lending. Maybe you could describe for us what that market is and how you assess the risks there. So it's essentially a market for high-yield borrowers. It is worth over $1.1 trillion as of a couple of months ago. So it's big in size, and it's been growing at double-digit levels for the past four years. Now, the concern is that that growth has been happening a little bit too fast, and issuer friendliness has become a little bit excessive. We're definitely sympathetic to that. The signal from the primary market hasn't been that good, I would say, in 2018. We've seen a lot of transactions where there was excessive issuer friendliness. 
the ability of issuers to strip collateral, some strong assumptions made in terms of earnings addbacks and things of that sort. And so I would say, in general, we have sympathy with the concerns. I think it's one area that you need to keep a very, very close eye on. But that only tells half of the story. The other half of the story is that actually 2018, for the broader market, not just for primary market transactions, if you take the broader leverage loan market, 2018 was a very, very good year from a fundamental standpoint. What we saw is a strong rebound in earnings. One thing that I find quite remarkable in the leveraged loan market today is that if you look at debt servicing capacity, so interest coverage ratios, they're the highest we've seen in 15 years, which is really remarkable considering the fact that we had eight hikes in the cycle. And so I would get very concerned if the signal that we got in the second half of last year from the primary market kind of repeats itself for many quarters, and that would change the fundamental picture for the broader leveraged loan market. But I think right now, a lot of the bad PR that targeted the leveraged loan market in the fourth quarter is a little bit unjustified, in my opinion. Yes, there were some pretty bad signals from the primary market, but for the secondary market, I think 2018 was actually a pretty good year. Now, There's two things that I think attracted a lot of attention. One, the growth of Covlight loans. It's something that we hear all the time, 80%. That's one of those issuer-friendly, which is a great euphemism, by the way. I think some of that reflects a natural institutional evolution of the market. I think a lot of market participants forgot why covenants, maintenance covenants are there in the first place. We traditionally include maintenance governments in a bank lending model where there's a bank that lends to corporations and then the banks basically need to be able to look at the books and monitor the situation in real time. Today, the leveraged loan market works pretty much like the bond market. The loans are syndicated to hundreds of investors. And when you do that, you sort of naturally reduce the value proposition of those maintenance covenants. And so I'm not dismissive of the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely reflective of issuer friendliness. But I think the other half of the story is that it's sort of a natural evolution of the market. The second thing to keep in mind is that even though maintenance covenants almost disappeared from the leverage loan market, 80% of the stock of existing loans has no maintenance covenants. They haven't completely disappeared at the capital structure level. If you look at revolvers or other type of loans, they still have maintenance governance. And so that's a nuance that most people generally miss when they talk about governance. If we start talking about getting rid of all governance, well, that's a problem. But that's not what that 80% stat refers to. So another area that gets some attention is direct lending, a relatively new phenomenon post-financial crisis. And there's a lot of concern that the credit quality in that space is low or getting lower. Some people have even compared it to the subprime mortgage crisis and the market that developed there. Is that a fair comparison in your view? Direct lending, first of all, is part of a broader private debt complex. The private debt complex is worth roughly $700 billion. And within that slice, we have direct lending funds. And these these are are funds that grew up from banks not wanting to lend to certain clients, right? Exactly. And those are mainly what we would call middle market loans. So loans extended to small companies with EBITDA below $50 million. It's a fairly new asset class, and it has very limited history, and so most estimates actually would put the total assets under management in direct lending around $250 billion. I've seen some industry publications putting that number at $400 billion, but it's a post-crisis child, and so we don't have the kind of history that we have for other markets, like the leveraged loan market or the triple B market, 
to make historical comparisons. The risk is opacity, to your point. These are thousands of middle market small loans that are put in those funds, and it's not the most transparent market out there, so that naturally carries risks. And then the second is fundamentals. If the syndicated middle market is of any guidance, well, fundamentals for syndicated middle market loans are worse relative to the broader market. There are a few mitigating factors. One, quite often those direct lenders are the solo lender to those firms, and that gives them extra flexibility to get things done very quickly. And then two, to the best of my knowledge at least, we're not seeing the kind of asset liability mismatches that we had in the crisis. And so one of the channels that amplified losses pre-crisis is these mismatches where you had investors borrowing overnight and then getting levered up 20, 30 times. And eventually, you know, that became problematic when the cycle turned. This time around, we're not seeing that. You're seeing longer-term capital. Yeah, capital is locked in for five, seven years, and it's basically, you know, lent to corporations for roughly the same duration. Most of those funds actually don't offer daily liquidity, so the risk that you get a run basically on those funds is fairly limited. But I would concede right away that it has never been tested, and it's a fairly young asset class, so we just don't know. And we don't know enough about it, too. You mentioned commercial real estate market. Prices may or may not be a little bubbly, but we're still seeing reasonably cautious lending in that space. Or What's your view? I mean, that's clearly the tug of war. Most models would suggest that prices are well above fair value. And so from a valuation standpoint, it does look very stretched. And then as an offset to that, lending standards have actually been tightening. And so lenders are doing what they're supposed to do, which is act a lot more carefully. Now, what are the risks or is there a risk to financial stability? If the bar is a remake of 2008, 2009, I think that bar is very, very high for a couple of reasons. One, if you look again at underwriting standards, they are much better today relative to that period. For example, loan-to-value ratios are a lot lower today than they were back then. Debt service coverage ratios are a lot higher today than they were back then. And so we are not immune to a correction in prices, but in that state of the world, the ability of lenders to absorb losses is a lot better relative to certainly the mid-2000s or in the run-up to the crisis. Yeah. Even in the run-up to the crisis, it wasn't a primary driver. It, it wasn't really more That's, the household absolutely. side. Yeah. You talked about subprime auto market. Talk a little bit more about the dynamics there. It's highly unusual to see an increase in delinquency rates in an economy that's operating at full employment. And that's getting traction in the financial press and it's been getting traction particularly the past two to three weeks. But the market is worth a little over $1.2 trillion. So it's a big market. And delinquency rates are not far from the post-crisis peak. We're roughly at 4.5% if you look at 90-day plus delinquency rates. Where's the puzzle? The puzzle is if you scratch a little bit under the surface and look at differences between prime and subprime borrowers, what you see is that that uptick in delinquency rates has been entirely concentrated among subprime borrowers. And that's really the key driver of that puzzle in a sense that it is entirely reflective of looser underwriting standards for the past eight years, not just for subprime borrowers, by the way, but also for deep subprime borrowers, borrowers with FICO scores below 520, sometimes 500. And so that's really the driver of that increase in delinquency rates, which is highly unusual in an economy that operates at full employment. A couple of caveats. One, the level matters. We're talking about a delinquency rate of 4.5%, which is still much lower relative to other consumer credit buckets like credit cards, for example. 
Two, I think the auto market is not the housing market. If you look at the auto sector pricing cycle, it doesn't have these booms and busts like the housing market has in a sense that auto prices, exactly, they are a lot more predictable and much less volatile. And so the risk that you have, again, the same amplifying channels that you had pre-crisis is fairly low because the risk is just better understood in terms of the value of the collateral. And then, too, if you look at the asset-backed securities market and look at some of the high-loss deals there, borrowers are charged close to 20%. I mean, that's a very decent compensation for future loss rates. So the risk is there, but it seems to me that the price of risk is there, too. Mm. It's also easier to get the asset back. Yeah. While traumatic, not as traumatic as losing your house, the student loan market rightfully gets a lot of attention. Its growth has been somewhat staggering. It's certainly a problem if you're someone who's facing a lot of that debt, but how does it fit into the broader picture of credit markets and financial stability here? It is not a risk to financial stability, and the reason is that 90% of the outstanding of student loans is held by strong hands, and that's the U.S. government. And so the risk that we have losses in the private sector is fairly de minimis. Having said that, as you said, it is a social problem. Tuition inflation has been outpacing overall inflation for almost two decades. That, coupled with the fact that more people basically were going to college, fueled dramatic growth of the student loan market, which is today worth $145 trillion. What doesn't help is the fact that delinquency rates have been oscillating at double-digit levels for probably seven, eight years now. Is it problematic? Absolutely. It is a problem for household formations. It is a problem for future growth, and it's definitely a drag for future growth. There's a Fed study that showed that Every 10-point increase in student loan balance results in anywhere between a point or two of decline in home ownership for those borrowers in the five years that follow their exit from college. And so it's not a problem to financial stability the same way the CRE market is or the auto loan market could be, but it is definitely a social problem and it's definitely a drag on future growth. We've been in a rising rate environment tighter monetary policy, at least up until yep. now, uh, that may be a pause, but um, you know, leads to higher interest payments. How much of a concern is that this cycle, that rates will rise up to a point where there's really some so significant I, pain on consumers? Think, yeah. To your point, I think those concerns should probably subside here, given the Fed's pivot operated in January. But I would say even actually prior to that pivot, we were never really concerned about the risk of a payment shock. And the reason is simple. What matters is not the increase in rates itself. What matters is what drives that increase in rates. And so to the extent rates are going up in response to good growth, that shouldn't be a problem because, yes, the price of your liabilities goes up a little bit, but the value of your assets and earnings growth typically rebound. And that's exactly what happened when the Fed started to normalize monetary policy in 16, 17, and 18. Interest expenses increased a little bit, but earnings growth was strong enough to provide a decent offset to that. So we've never been really in the camp that worries about the risk of a payment shock on the back of normalizing monetary policy, because at the end of the day, that's really all we're talking about. We're not talking about over-tightening of monetary policy. That view sort of played out. And now, like I said, with the Fed's pivot in January, I think those concerns should be put to rest. So where does that leave us? 
we'll go back to where we started. What's the big picture in terms of recession risk, given the various financial imbalances you described? The big picture is that in aggregate, if you take a 10,000 feet view, what we're seeing is that the private sector is still overall in pretty good shape. And the risks that we have a financial overshooting a la 2007, 2008, or even the late 90s is still very, very low. And so what I would describe, you know, what we just discussed is just a collection of sector stories that is highly unlikely to add up and become a driver of a recession. Obviously, all these pockets of risks are actually worth active monitoring. But I think when we think about the causality between recession and these pockets of risk, the risk that they drag the broader economy into a full downturn is still fairly low in our view. Let's talk a little bit about you. You joined the firm right before the financial crisis in 2007. So you've lived through one massive cycle. Yeah. What's one thing you've learned working through that crisis and through the aftermath now that's changed the way you think about these things? Yeah. So I actually joined literally a couple of months after the first mortgage fund started to collapse in the summer of 2007. If you sort of ask me to summarize what I learned in one sentence, I would say, don't take anything for granted. Think outside the box and challenge the status quo. But I came to Goldman fresh out of school, out of grad school, with a lot of research ideas that I tried to sort of apply. And I know it sounds a little bit surreal to say that, given that the financial crisis posed an existential threat to the entire financial system. But the way I look at it almost 12 years later is that it was an incredible learning experience. I think it allowed me to basically put all the theory that I learned in grad school into practice. I got to sharpen my understanding of things like supply-demand technical imbalances, market dislocations, market illiquidity, deleveraging shock, counterparty risk, all concepts that are actually learned in theory at school. But everything was just happening right in front of me. And like after that, I was like, okay, now I get it. I understand what those things were. But to me, it was an incredible learning experience. Obviously, I say that with the benefit of hindsight. At the time, some days were less pleasant than others, but it was a great learning experience. So, Latvi, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. If you'd like to learn more about this issue, you can find the report I mentioned earlier, Learning from a Century of U.S. Recessions, on our Goldman Sachs website. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on February 26th, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.